Fifteen years ago this month, the Cato Institute launched the Cato Daily Podcast, and to mark the occasion, we're hoping to give you a token of our appreciation and ask a small favor. Visit cato.org slash cdp15 to get a pair of vinyl Cato Daily Podcast stickers in the mail and give one of them to a friend who might enjoy timely libertarian perspectives on issues of the day. That website, again, is cato.org slash cdp15. And now more than ever, thank you for listening. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 13th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Social entrepreneurship is business for good. But like so many things in life, if you want your business to achieve that social good, you have to be running a good business. Sam Staley is, among other things, a professor of economics at Florida State University. We spoke last month. When entrepreneurs go into business, there's a bottom line. And it's a very clear bottom line. It is profits and losses. And that's the, that's the big measure, you know, that uh, Milton Friedman talked about the social responsibility of uh, companies, of corporations, was to maximize profits. And I understand that to a point. I know there's some disagreement about, uh, I think it's a minor disagreement, frankly, but people think that's gross and uh, kind of gauche and ugly, that that is the, the one metric that must be used. But I, I get it. If if you're a business person, you would like to continue to exist. So profits and losses matter, and they matter more than anything else, quite possibly. So what is social entrepreneurship, and what is the bottom line for social entrepreneurs? Those are two great questions, and I actually have multiple answers and different layers to that. So social entrepreneurship, and the way I use it in the seminar that I teach and developed at Florida State University and we helped build a curriculum around, is a business enterprise that is, a, that is created for the primary purpose of solving a social problem or addressing a social problem. So the profits in and of themselves are not a value. It's what happens with the profits and how you use that to build value and with a focus on addressing whatever that social issue or problem is. So in some ways, in terms of the mechanics, and certainly the way we teach it at Florida State University, or at least the way I teach it at Florida State University, not all faculty are on the same page by any means, but uh, is that you have to make money. And if you can't make money, you're not going to sustain yourself. And the way I tell my students, because most of my students, in fact, are not business students. They actually, I just ran the numbers. Most of them aren't even economics majors because um, we don't have any prerequisites for my seminar in social entrepreneurship. Most of them are typical young adults. They want to make the world a better place. And what we're trying to do, and I tell them, look, the more money you make, the more that revenue can be invested in the social change you want to create. And uh, so the social part is really a part of a normal business. I mean, we're not actually saying it's going to displace other businesses. I'm, I'm, and we're, through the entire course, we're saying we love profits. Um, in fact, the more the merrier. But in our class and for our students, what the social part allows us to do is really expand that social impact as an explicit part of the enterprise itself. And that's what captures their imagination. Right. So it's uh, in some sense for customers, at least it's a psychic good, right? I'm contributing to this thing that I like that I'm, that is no part of the material benefits that I derive from the product. On the margin, 
that psychic good actually gives you a competitive advantage, particularly now. One of the interesting things, and we talk about this in the class as well as other places, is that given our wealth of the Western world in particular, in America specifically, it we're at a position where we need to differentiate our products in meaningful ways to people. And the social component is a meaningful differentiator for people. And so it actually adds to the competitive advantage of a business. It's not just that we're creating a book, it's that this book is going to educate children in Uganda or wherever it might be, or even my own kids, you know, in my own backyard. And so that psychic benefit is beneficial. Although you can't lose sight of the fact you actually have a product you have to sell. And I have a friend who runs a coffee shop, for example, sustainable coffee shop. Uh, they've got what they call a triple bottom line, environmental sustainability, profitability, and then social impact. And he talks about how he loves the he loves the coffee shop because it is, allows them to invest in these programs that are really trying to help people that are less fortunate internationally as well as locally. But he also recognizes that if he doesn't make a good cup of coffee, no one's walking in the door. Not even those people that want to do good. Um, so it's uh, so it, it actually does add an additional burden to the social entrepreneur. But what we found is there are so many ways to make that practically beneficial that it's really exciting. And coffee in particular is feels like it's been at the nexus of this idea for a really long time. That it, between Starbucks, uh, between lo- like roasters who only buy fair trade certified beans where you can be reasonably assured that the people picking the beans are uh, being paid better than, than otherwise. But it also for me at least, has been a proxy for this is probably better coffee. Yeah. And I think that's what my friend who runs the coffee shops would 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 argue. And there are a number of reasons to think about that. So actually, we go through this exercise in the class and we say, okay, here's your $7 cup of coffee. Here's your $4 cup of coffee. Here's your $2 cup of coffee. Where do you buy those coffees? Because all of those exist in the market. I'm, By the way, I'm not a coffee drinker, so I'm completely agnostic on this. Mountain Dew, then we're a different issue. But um, coffee, not so much. And if you want just that hard, you know, caffeine sort of shot, you're going to Dunkin' Donuts and McDonald's. You're not going to Starbucks. You're not going to these higher-end coffee shops. If you want a coffee that has a different flavor and a different taste that really kind of hits your palate in a way. There are tasting notes on the chalkboard at yeah. the coffee shop. Right. Then you are going to these higher-end specialized coffee shops. And to do that, you actually need to be very clear about where you're getting your coffee beans from, how they're being roasted. It actually makes a difference. And then they layer into that. And as you, it becomes more and more of a customized process, the more social good you can do because you actually become aware of where that's sourced. So it's not just about making sure the money gets to the grower. It's also, or the the coffee picker or the, the bean picker. It's also about, for many of the people that are invested in this particular area of social entrepreneurship, it's also about whether that income is being used in an empowering way for the person on the ground. So this is where I get into these conversations where, a lot of people in the coffee, sustainable coffee, fair trade, are anti-plantation. And part of the reason is, yes, they're not getting paid what they think they should be paid a fair wage. The other part of it is that if you're working on a plantation, there's no nothing empowering about that. As a labor, you're a commodity, and you're treated as a commodity. 
And so they want to work more with cooperatives because there's an ownership stake that comes with that process. So it's actually much, it can be very complicated and very layered in the way people approach that. I find that invigorating. I mean, I find it inspiring. And it's not that unusual if we actually peel back the layers of normal business in the U.S. at least. How studied is this? Because you talk about how invigorating it is to to have these layered uh, interactions and business people trying to balance uh, multiple bottom lines because without the bottom line uh, money, there it, it's really hard to to do these other things. And yet, if you're not really doing good out there, uh, you can lose all your credibility with people who otherwise would be love to be buying your product and buying your product for, quote unquote, the right reasons. Yeah. Uh, well, there are two ways to answer the question about how studied is it. If we're talking about it in an academic sense, it's well, very understudied. And in, in some ways, it's not surprising because social entrepreneurship evolved out of practical experience. A lot of people who are working in economic development, a lot of it international, meaning not U.S., economic development, really became frustrated with the charitable giving, the international foreign aid world, and they just became very disillusioned. And they began to think about, there's got to be a better way to do this. And especially when they're interested in more in empowering as opposed to redistributing wealth. They found that the money was going to the wrong people and not catalyzing the right effort. And so, really, two stories, I think, illustrate this. One is I was talking to a former Peace Corps volunteer, and uh, she was in North Africa. And she realized after being on the ground for not very long that everything she was doing for the Peace Corps really wasn't having the impact she had hoped. And so she started a, a entrepreneurship enterprise that empowered women in North Africa on the side. And so that's social entrepreneurship responding to the inefficiency and the ineffectiveness of the, tr- the traditional ways of providing aid. So it, so in some sense, there's this big gap. There's a big gap. Between people who are explicitly trying to do good, and that is, that is the mission, and uh, people who could be doing a heck of a lot more good uh, while turning a profit. Right. And that is becoming, I would say social entrepreneurship is now becoming a dominant thought. Um, within the economic development area. And uh, we're finding also in the nonprofit world in the U.S., the idea of having market-based revenue streams is now mainstream. And all of this is built on sort of recognizing we need a sustainable approach to this. There is a downside, I guess, that I can see, which is, well, Tom's Shoes is the Mm -hmm. the example that I... Uh, see and hear about as being sort of the prototype for this, which is uh, a company that uh, sells shoes and then says, hey, you buy our shoes, we'll give shoes to low-income people uh, around the world. And that, you, at first blush, you're like, wow, that's really interesting. But to the extent that they're doing that, uh, it's my understanding, at least, that they may be destroying local economies. Right. And uh, to the extent that that's the case, this ownership stake that you're talking about where um, these larger firms, typically Western firms, uh, ought to be engaging with those people, not as like a helicopter drop of aid, but engaging with them as business partners. Yeah, and Tom's Shoes is now an example of how not to do social entrepreneurship or really with what the prob- the pitfalls are. 
a better example, which is now gaining more prominence as doing it the right way, is uh, Divvy Up Socks, which I'm not sure many people may be aware of. It's actually a national brand. Um, but they were the, I believe they were the first company to do the uh, custom imagery on socks. So you can go to the website, Divvy Up, and then you say, I want to put my dog on my sock, and that's going to be a gift sock, whatever. The interesting thing about Divvy Up is that the founders, uh, or actually they're from Tallahassee, they were Florida State students, they were originally interested in trying to create a social business, and they wanted to help uh, address a social problem, and it actually was homelessness. They had certain ideas about what homeless people needed. And then our social entrepreneur and residents at the time said, you know what, why don't you go down and talk to somebody at a shelter and really start digging into this to truly understand what's going on and what they need. And so they went down and they asked the homeless shelter, you know, if we could help, you know, what, what do you need? And the homeless shelter people said, socks. We are, our, our people that are in our shelter, they need socks because people give us food. They gave us all sorts of clothing, but man, you know, these are people outside most of the time, most of the day, they need clean, dry socks that are durable. And so then they began thinking about that. And then they said, well, and then, so they said, well, how do we get socks? Well, and eventually, I mean, obviously I'm going to, I'm shortening the story. They end up coming up to a commercial enterprise with socks and this really cool technology. And it's a one-for-one model, the same Tom's shoe model, because uh, Tom's is a one-for-one model. But the difference is at Divvy Up Socks, they actually looked at what the problem was. And they tried to figure out how they could take their business and actually address the problem from a bottom-up way of looking at it. And nobody is making socks for homeless people. So what they're doing is they're selling the socks, and they just gave away their millionth sock. They're in 45 different states where people can donate. You can go online, buy, you know, buy a sock, and you can donate it to a shelter in your state if you want to. It's not an empowering model in the sense you haven't created jobs for homeless people, but it does layer into the prob- solving the problem with an innovative solution. So with Tom's Shoes, my understanding is now they've kind of recognized the problem of that model, and it really did create harm. I mean, let's not, you know, it, it, by putting local entrepreneurs out of business, you are doing harm. They recognize that, and now they're trying to shift their models so their sourcing comes from entrepreneurs on the ground in the places they're trying to help. Then you're into a real productive value creation space, and that the key is that it's being monetized through entrepreneurship, which gives you the ability to scale. And that that is that is probably the hard work of of social entrepreneurship is going down to the homeless shelter and talking to people about what the needs are. It reminded me while you were talking about uh, Bill Easterly's The Elusive Quest for Growth, which is just dumping uh, assets onto low-income people around the world, be it computers or condoms or uh, any number of things, and just with useless results, almost pure waste in, in some cases. In entrepreneurship, the term we use now is design engineering, it's, which is a real technical term, but really what it means is figure out what the customer needs. I mean, that's essentially what it is. And then you design the product around that need. 
in our social entrepreneurship seminar at Florida State, it's a 15-week seminar. It's really designed to take someone from zero to 60 in entrepreneurship in 15 weeks. Most of our students do not come from a business background. Only 5% of them are actually majoring in a business field. Only 20, about 20% of them, 25% are economics majors. Everyone else is international affairs. They're interdisciplinary social sciences. We've had um, pre-med. The, um, what is, uh, we spend the first 40% of the class just thinking about what the problem is and working through it. All, most students, like most people, want to jump to the solution. Our point is you don't know what the solution is until you know what the problem is. So we back them up and we have it in, structured in such a way they have to do the equivalent of going down to the homeless shelter. They have to actually figure out what the problem is. And then um, I'm confident I can build a for-profit business around it once they've identified the problem. In economists, I, you know, a lot of economists do, do real field work <laughs> to uh, under, understand a problem better. Eleanor Ostrom was famous Fantastic, for it. Fantastic, yep. And, but at the same time, this seems to, you know, reach out like Eleanor Ostrom of grabbing into, getting into other fields. And I know, are economists loathe to, to do that sort of thing? Yeah. Of really grabbing clear-headed thinking from sociology, from anthropology to truly get at what, it seems like social entrepreneurship really demands that. There is, and it's a fundamental, well, all entrepreneurship is interdisciplinary. I mean, that's the thing that we don't, we kind of forget. And, and frankly, we are, our seminar, it does not have a cozy relationship with traditional economic thinking about what we teach and how we go about, um, how we go about teaching it, what they need to learn. Um, and, but if we, there are certain traditions that really do emphasize a more anthropological multicultural approach. We forget that economics is really sociology. And if we go back to it, we're looking at human behavior. How do you understand human behavior unless you also understand psychology, social psychology, culture, norms, institutions, that type of thing? So social entrepreneurship fits squarely in that tradition. Where it doesn't fit is in mathematical modeling, and it doesn't fit in quantitative uh, economics, because so much of what we're doing is bottom-up and really tailored to the specific needs of particular populations, which are almost always on the margin. So we're not working with the average of a population. We're working with the people on the, on the margins of the population. And that, for economists, typically the way we train them, it's hard for them to quite understand that because our statistical methods are used to look at the average. And what we're trying to do is push the envelope in on the revolution, which is going after the marginal populations. And it's a very different set of tools you need to do that. And it fits really well within entrepreneurship and in certain branches of economics, although it's not often considered mainstream. Sam Staley, among other things, is a professor of economics at Florida State University. We spoke last month. It's our 15th anniversary at the Cato Daily Podcast. In appreciation to our listeners, we have a small gift for you. Visit cato.org slash cdp15 to learn more.